0: This podcast is brought to you by On Track Studio. Hi, it's Graham Scott here again, and welcome to, I guess, the fifth of uh, these podcasts that I've been doing about the illusion of the rational human being. And, um,. Recently, I've been doing a lot of thinking about irrational defensive behaviour and how much of what we do and about how much of the way we are is being defensive. And what I wanted to talk about today is how we do engage in, I suppose, what I'd loosely call defensive behaviour and why. And again, how that links to a lot of what I've talked about in the previous podcasts. If you recall, what we've talked about is the whole notion of the irrational versus irrational, the um, theory espoused, uh, theory in use, what we say we do, what we do, the anxiety-solving problem-solving model, how we solve anxiety as opposed to solving problems, and that's much to do with defensive behaviour. Defensive behaviour is mostly resolving anxiety. And I talked about the systems approach and the dynamics in the system and the way these dynamics interact. And we talked about confirmation bias, mental models, some of the cognitive biases that we um, have, how we hold a belief and how we... It's very difficult for us to let go of that belief. And then I went and talked about the development of an attitude and I used climate change and how we can influence the development of an attitude by creating a strong emotion. And I showed that through the um, walrus haul-outs and the emancipated polar bear on um, National Geographics and how people actually saw that, built a strong emotional connection and how that was so terrible and people actually wrote in saying it's how terrible. And then I talked about how... There is a lot of literature that pretty much says that that was staged, that it was staged to show that climate change caused these things when, in fact, there's quite a strong chance that it actually wasn't linked to climate change at all. However, that's then what we call noble-cause corruption. And the producers in both cases pretty much said this is what had to be done um, to make the public aware of climate change and burning fossil fuels, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So, noble cause corruption is about how we actually we build a story. Whether that story is true or not doesn't matter, but if it long it creates the desired outcome, and the desired outcome, the extinction rebellion, etc. 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 Those are the things that I guess we've talked about. So, and they're going to be linking in to today when I talk about um, defensive behavior. So, before I start, I'm actually going to tell you a little story. So I want you to sit back, relax, don't go to sleep, it's not a bedtime story. Now this story is called The War of the Ghosts, and it goes something like this. And by the way, I don't want you to do anything, don't want to take any notes, just sit back, relax, and as I said, listen to the story. One night, two young men from Ugalak went down to the river to hunt seals, and while they were there it became foggy and calm. Then they heard war cries and they thought, maybe this is a war party. They escaped to the shore and hid behind a log. Now canoes came up and they heard the noise of paddle and saw one canoe coming up to them. There were five in the canoe and they said, what do you think? We wish to take you along. We are going up the river to make war on the people. One of the young men said, I have no arrows. Arrows are in the canoe, they said. I will not go along. I might be killed. My relatives do not know where I have gone. But you, he said, turning to the other, may go with them. So one of the young men went, but the other returned home, and the warriors went up the river to a town on the other side of Kalama. The people came down to the water and they began to fight, and many were killed. But presently the young man heard one of the warriors say, Quick, let us go home, that Indian has been hit. Now he thought, are they ghosts?" He did not feel sick, but they said he had been shot. So the canoes went back to Ugalak, and the young man went ashore to his house and he made a fire and he told everybody and said, Behold, I accompanied the ghosts and we went to fight. Many of our fellows were killed and many of those who attacked us were killed. They said I was hit and I did not feel sick. He told it all and then he became quiet. When the sun rose he fell down. Something black came out of his mouth. His face became contorted. The people jumped up and cried. He was dead. Now, why did I tell you that story? What I want you to do, if you've got access to a pen or notes or somewhere where you can just jot down, just write the answers down to the questions I'm going to ask. Okay, so ready? Here's the questions. How did the story describe the night? The first question. The second question. When they hid, how tall was the grass that they hid in? How tall was the grass they hid in? Next question. How many canoes were there in the war party? Next question. How many were in that one canoe that came out? One canoe came out of the war party. How many were in that? Next question. Where were the spears? Next question. That canoe that came out, what colour was that canoe? The one canoe that came out, what colour was that canoe? Next question. Just after they said he had been hit, what did he realise? Last question. What colour was his tongue just before he died? What colour was his tongue? Okay, how'd you go? Are you a good story listener or am I a good storyteller? Okay, let's just go through and I'll run through the answers and you don't and it's funny when I do this in workshops people have this overpowering desire to tick and cross I got one right I got one right it doesn't matter so if you have an overpowering desire to tick and cross see if you can avoid it that's just an aside Okay. first question how do they describe the night a lot of people answer dark which is a fairly good uh, response for a night the story said foggy and calm and the next question, how tall was the grass? How many of you said about a metre high? How many of you said about hip high? How many of you said there was no grass, they hid behind a log? The canoes came up, how many were in that canoe? How many said five? The story didn't say how many were in that canoe, yet people often put five because five's the answer to the next question, so they use their five up. Some people just have an imagination and say ten, some people say many, some people say lots the story didn't say. The, um, there were five in that canoe. And some of you would have put, ah, yes, five, I got that. Some of you who've used your five up wouldn't have got five. Some of you would have said six because, ah, now there's six after there was five. Where were the spears? There were no spears mentioned. Some of you would have said the spears are in the canoe because arrows were in the canoe, but there were no spears mentioned. The colour of that canoe, there was no colour mentioned. Yet it's interesting the I get browns. Browns is probably brown, black, white. Are probably the predominant colours I get. Um, probably my most interesting colour was... Um, I had a guy who was Scottish in a group who said it was tartan. Um, I think he was joking. Sometimes white with red lightning stripes. There was no colour mentioned. It's interesting, how did we manufacture that colour? Because I asked the question. Just after the, he had been hit what did he feel? He realised there were ghosts, but he didn't feel sick. So there was two things he realised. He realised they were ghosts and he realised that he didn't feel sick. Just before he died, what colour was his tongue? His tongue wasn't mentioned. Something black came out of his mouth. And I get many people, when I again when I do this in workshops, who say um, his tongue was black. So why did I tell you that story? That story is from a concept that we call logical reconstruction. So what is logical reconstruction? We reconstruct a story based on our logical memory, our previous histories, previous readings, etc., etc., etc. Our mental models help create that story. So we can create a story based on emphasis. So I can create a story for you. And a typical one that uh, we used to use is a, a video. we show a video of a, a car, a blue car, hitting a red car and after we showed the video and with some other props I would ask the question how fast was the blue car going as it ran into the side of the red car now I'd ask that question to half the group who'd seen the video then I'd ask another question or I'd ask the same question to another group or the other half of the group generally And I'd say, how fast was the blue car going as it sped down the street and smashed into the side of the red car? I had two different answers when I asked that story of the estimation of speed. And it's really interesting. And the only thing that changed is the way I emphasised the wording and sped up the wording and made it more intense in the second question. Yet there was a predominance of differences in speeds um, when I asked those two questions. People had seen the same video. I wanted to show you this firstly to highlight that concept. And what's this got to do with defensive behaviour? We create a story and we defend that story. Have you ever been to a meeting and afterwards you read the minutes and thought, I wasn't there? Have you ever got into the he said, she said in an argument where you say, you said this, and somebody else says, I do not. and You go into, you're a liar. Um, No, you're a liar. And there's no value in that conversation. Yet it's what each of us have thought they said. Sometimes we're not even aware of what we say. We think we are. We're not aware of what others say. We think we are. We're not aware of really what we see. We recreate the gaps. We We fill in the gaps. And to give you an example of that, when there was a stronger race divide... Um, In the United States, um, oftentimes at workshops, training sessions, we would talk about race and one of the topics that we would have is crime by uh, African-American people in America, robberies. So we'd start off with that and then we'd show a video of a store being robbed and the video would show uh, the perpetrator... Couldn't get a good view of the perpetrator. We couldn't see a gun or anything like that. But what we saw afterwards was an African-American man running from the scene. We then structured a series of questions and asked people what they saw. And some of the questions were quite suggestive in terms of, did you see the African-American man in the store wearing a hoodie, and you're quite positive that that was the person you saw running. Yes. So the greater percentage of the audience was adamant that that person was the perpetrator. And afterwards we went through that and and actually took it like, okay, I want you to give now a statement of what you saw. So people talked about seeing the person come into the store and seeing the person produce a gun and some people actually said that the person fired the gun and then the person leaving the store and that same person running down the street. Was it the same person? Yes, it most definitely was. It was the same person. As a matter of fact, there wasn't a gun and we could never see the, the face of this person. As it was, it was actually a video of a, a white female who was actually the, the perpetrator. Yet some people actually would say, no, when we showed the video again, they would say, no, that's not the video I saw. The video I saw, there was a gun. And you say, no... There wasn't a gun. But the interesting thing was people got, some people got quite angry. You're trying to trick us. You're trying to tell us that we saw this video when we didn't. And they were so adamant about what they'd seen. And that's uh, logical reconstruction and it's a cognitive reconstruction that is so intense um, it was actually surprising sometimes. And if you look going back to, as I said, the emancipated polar bear and how we defend our metal models, people defend their metal, metal models based on that. I recently had a situation where it was quite interesting. I went to a university in Brisbane that I'd been to many, many, many years ago. And you might tell from looking at me, I've probably been around for quite a while. And there was a young girl there outside the student union office And she had a number of books out front. And um, anyway, some of the books were um, about Marxism, about um, climate change, different things, um, probably from a more left-based ideology. And um, I said, wow, this is interesting. I said, it reminds me of the days I was here around 50 years ago. And we had a discussion of how those were the heady days of the Vietnam War and all those sorts of things. And I actually said... To this girl, I saw an article there about climate change. I said, Do you know, I'm actually a a student, I'm studying climate change. And I said, "Um, I've just done some research around the. I said, and I, well, I asked her if she'd seen the polar bear video and if she'd seen the walrus, and she said she'd seen all that. And I said, I've just seen, um, I've just done some research that shows that there's a strong possibility that that was staged. Uh, And it it wasn't really real. And her first reaction, she put her hands up and said, I don't want to talk to you. And I said, oh, um, I'd be interested in what you thought about that. I'm not talking to you. I'm not listening to you. And she turned away and walked away. People started to look. She was shouting, I'm not going to talk to you. And I thought, wow, this is, I guess, the ultimate in confirmation bias, the ultimate in defensive behaviour, when you can't have a conversation even where there is an opposing view. This was, to me, actually quite uh, amazing. And and from a psychologist's perspective, it was still surprising um, at at her her reaction. And when I look now, recently in Australia we've had a march for climate change and there was one chap who took both his children, an 11-year-old girl, to the march And um, and they talked about, we're not going to be able to live here much longer if the heat keeps going up. The daughter told um, the news, we're not going to be able to live here much longer if the heat keeps going up, an 11-year-old girl said. A group of students from Melbourne Girls' College attended after hearing about the rally from a teacher I believe it's worth missing half a day of school just to make sure the next generation will actually get to live and have an education here on our planet. A year seven student said, a year seven student. I was expecting at the very minimum no new coal and gas. That's a very minimal demand that we shouldn't make it worse. 16-year-old said that. My question... Do you think children of 11 and 12 can reasonably make an informed decision on climate change without having been, I suppose, I'll call it cognitively induced? And if these people had been exposed to the polar bear, the walrus, those views would have been so strong. So I guess if I look at why do I focus on climate change, climate change to me is a very interesting topic. Because it it appears that it's something that should be being dealt with scientifically, has become almost an ideological football, and that shows in the strength of conviction of these young children. And it goes back, I think, to the was it the Jesuit priests who said, "Give me a boy till he's seven, and I'll shape the man." And if you think is this a good thing to be doing to children, that's not the. It's not a question I want an answer for, but it's a question an ideological question that I think needs to be posed. I'll leave that one there. And if you think about a story I think I might have told you about my dear old mum, when I went to talk to her about the Catholic Church and about the the priests in the Catholic Church, she said, I don't want to hear it. That means that I've got a face that everything I've believed in, most of my life, is not true. I don't want to face that. I don't want to face that. So basically she put her hands over her ears. Not physically, but that's what she did. So defensive reasoning and if I look at the at the girl at university, I don't know whether what she did was defensive was defensive, but it wasn't reasoning. It was just a a reaction. It's how we solve anxiety. I don't I don't want the anxiety of having to think about this. I don't want the anxiety of being proved I'm wrong. So we go back to the problem-solving model, the anxiety-solving, et cetera. Sometimes we defend when there's a non-attack. There's no attack. I thought there was more money in the account. One partner says to the other, reaction? I didn't spend it. I didn't say you did. Yes, you did. I can tell by the way you were asking that you said i am be spending it. Ah, oh, how do we get there? How do we get into these, these discussions where it's just attack-defend or it's no attack-defend? I actually witnessed something... Um, some time back now, where a a huge truck came into a narrow street and parked and was waiting to unload in a loading zone and had blocked a number of cars in. The driver of one of those cars actually went up to the truck and actually said, oh, g'day, um, will you be here long? And the guy jumped out of the truck and started abusing this person. I've got every right to be here. You can't tell me not to park here. And the guy just said, mate, Oh, I've got to go somewhere and I just wondered how long you were going to be here. So we, we build up a story of why somebody's attacking us. It's almost like very quickly, a story I heard many years ago, a fellow broke down on a country road, um, actually was a, a flat tyre. He got out of the car and looked and went to his boot to get the jack, didn't have a jack. Oh my God, what am I going to do? It's late at night, it's country road. Ah, there's a light up there, there's a house. I'll go up and I'll ask the people if I can borrow their jack. So he walks up and as he's walking, he's thinking, "Oh boy, it's late. They're going to think I'm an intruder. Oh, they're going to they're going to not talk to me. They're going to not even open the door. They probably won't have a jack. And why would they give it to me? They won't give it to me. So anyway, he goes through all this, and this is leaps of abstraction that we make. We build these things up in our minds. Gets to the door, and knocks on the door, and guy comes to the door and says, "Oh, good evening." The guy looks at him and says, "You could stick your jack." turns around and walks away. I don't think that's a true story, but you can see how that happens where we build something up in our minds that ready for an attack and the attack never comes. How many of you gone to a meeting planning to be attacked? So you build your defence and somebody congratulates you for a wonderful job done. But that's how we, uh, I guess, how we do it. So what, why do we defend and what do we defend against? We defend against embarrassment. We defend against Having our mental models challenged, we we defend against criticism. Being wrong, which is embarrassment, ego, face-saving. The executive facing an exposure from a graduate, and I actually witnessed this, in this case a young graduate offered a solution to an engineering problem. The executive tasked with resolving the issue berated the graduate for undermining him, and then rationalised it by explaining that the graduate could not have the experience to solve such a complex problem, and therefore need to be cautioned and he didn't have time at the at the meeting to actually uh, caution the graduate he just had to stop him yet in reality the graduate was going to expose that executive's incompetence as long as i don't get the blame or i can shift it we defend against that we defend against being blamed we defend against being exposed as incompetent very rational one again i had a student who was a flying instructor who came to me once and said i did something and i don't understand why okay what'd you do as a flying instructor, he'd taken up a student who was just about ready to go solo. And what happens, or used to happen in those days, this is going back probably about 10 years or so, the instructor would fly with the student, do a circuit, they'd land, and the instructor would say to the student, right, I'm getting out of the plane, you do one circuit, um, come in, we'll talk, you're on your own. The instructor would walk back to their office or wherever and wait. In this particular case, the instructor got out of the aircraft, the student was on Um, his own and um, as the instructor was walking back he was just going through things and he thought oh as he was doing his pre-landing checks uh, in the last couple of circuits he wasn't really checking his fuel he was just sort of saying fuel but wasn't really checking it and the instructor was thinking to himself that I know that the tank he was on because you've got two tanks left right sometimes aircraft have got or, but anyway, in this particular case, left-hand wing tank, right wing tank. And um, so he was over on the left, and um, the instructor was thinking, "Oh, that tank was nearly empty. And I don't know whether he was really checking and would have switched it over to the right. OK, he's got a phone. The particular air strip was um, controlled, so he could have rang the tower immediately and said, tower, contact that aircraft. Tell the pilot to make sure he checks his fuel, that he's very low on the left-hand tank. And he said he sat there in front of his telephone and did nothing. I think these were the days before mobile, so it might have been more than 10 years ago. Um, And he said he did nothing. He did nothing. And then as he was sitting there thinking, oh, I really should ring the tower, I really should ring, he heard an aircraft coming into land and he heard it splutter. And then he heard it pick up again. So the student did miss changing tanks, and almost, had he not been, I guess, switched on enough to know his drill, which was change tanks immediately, stick his fuel pump on, etc., he could have had a nasty accident. Now, the instructor was aware of that, and the instructor said, why did I do that? And I looked at him, and I said, I think you know, why did you do it? And I drilled down a little bit with him, and it was because he was scared that if he did that, he'd be seen as incompetent. And the interesting thing was, in his rational mind, if the student had have crashed, it wouldn't have ultimately been his fault. He could have actually passed it aside and said it wasn't my fault. And we had that discussion, and he's a normal human being. How often are we exposed to those sorts of things where we will take some very difficult decisions and not do anything because we're scared of being exposed, embarrassed, seen as incompetent. So the other thing that we defend against are our beliefs or our confirmation biases, and you can see by that story about the girl at university how that happens. Criticism. Avoid answering the questions. And sometimes the criticism of not answering the question is easier to take that actually the answer you might give so it's easier to avoid answering the questions it's not our fault it was the opposition we, d- we defend against just plain incompetence we avoid answering the question we deflect we cover our tracks we blame we distract we discredit the inquirer we discredit the opposition we do all those sorts of things to avoid being seen as incompetent. A lack of understanding, which is an interesting one. How many times have you been in a situation where you believe and then act as if you should know, where you know you don't know, but act as if you should know? An example um, I saw was an organisation where we had an executive who was actually doing a talk on key performance indicators. This executive didn't really have a very good understanding of key performance indicators, yet was... Telling the group about key performance indicators. I sat in the meeting and the executive after it said, any, any questions? There were none. So I just inter- intervened there and I said, how many of you understood the delivery? How many of you really understood that delivery and could talk about it? No hands went up. I said, okay. Why didn't you ask a question? Well, basically some said I didn't want to appear as though I didn't know. I didn't know which question to ask. I didn't want to embarrass myself and I didn't want to embarrass the executive. So how many times do you sit there and you listen to something that you have no understanding of what just happened instead of saying, hang on, I don't understand what you've said and then we defend against that by pretending that we did know and sometimes, oh yes, that was a great talk. As I've said before, um, confirmation bias, we defend against our middle models Noble cause corruption is really the rationalisation by stealth or a lie or attempted manipulation. And this is an example of an irrational rationalisation. Noble cause corruption used to be called the Dirty Harry syndrome after a Clint Eastwood movie, Dirty Harry, where this uh, policeman basically bought his own evidence. In noble cause corruption, you look at, and I think I mentioned this once before with confirmation bias, there are a number of amazing court cases where evidence was fabricated because the police, well, we know he's guilty. We just know it. We've got a gut feeling. We've got a vibe. We know it. So we might as well manufacture the evidence and just get it over with. He'll get away otherwise and he'll be back out on the street. So that's the rationalisation. We discredit the source. Again, a bright young graduate presenting in important information to an executive group. Criticise for the quality of the presentation. What's the learning? Make sure you've got your eyes dotted and your T's crossed. You don't really have to know what you're talking about. What I talked about was how we can defend is we place the crown of stupidity on the masses. That's a subtle defence for an action. We treat the masses as though they're stupid, basically. And I, I look here at a recent event in um, Queensland, here and where I live, um, there's been a housing crisis in Australia and Queensland, and not enough houses. People are paying high rents, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the Queensland government actually announced that property owners could now rent, rent secondary dwellings, such as granny flats, to non-household members. So what basically happens years ago, still you could build what they called a granny flat, which you could allow your mum, your dad, your grandma to live in this uh, detached house on your land. And that was just for granny for a relative. So the government in their wisdom has said you can now rent these to people other than family members. How wonderful is that? That is fantastic. Except for the fact there probably wasn't one single granny flat vacant in Queensland that wasn't already rented if it wasn't being occupied by a member of the family. And this has been going on for many years. People were renting them. The government was doing nothing about it. But now they've said, we're going to allow you to do it, and which is really, as I said, it's a subtle defence for inaction and it's treating the public like they are um, ignorant. One I looked at in some depth that I thought was interesting and um, was something I, I reviewed here in... Uh, Queensland, many years ago there was a very sad case of a young boy who was um, abducted and later uh, murdered. And during that whole process, there was accusations that a senior police officer had ignored some vital information. There were two uh, police officers, a Kenneth King and a um, Damien Martin, who actually said that they presented this information to this senior police officer who was a chap called uh, Mike Condon who then became the assistant police commissioner. I can't say whether there's truth or fiction in any part of this story because that's not, not up to me, of course. But it it is a an interesting story on how this whole process of defensive behaviour happens. King, when he was talking to um, the ABC, basically said, I thought he, talking about the suspect who was, abs- who was eventually convicted, a fellow called Cowan, was a red-hot suspect. He basically said that the officers heading the investigation had not taken his initial report seriously enough. And after um, Daniel Morecambe was abducted, waiting for a bus near his home, Just over a week later, police received a number of reports of a blue car in the area and this became the main focus of the investigation. However, Cowan did not drive a blue car. He drove a white four-wheel drive. And what uh, Kenneth King, the policeman, believes, that is this the reason, this is the reason investigators did not pay enough attention to Cowan. This is a first perfect example, if it was the case, of confirmation bias. We've got a blue car. We've got to focus on this blue car hang on, there's another guy here who could be worth investigating. No, we're focusing on this blue car. So that's how confirmation bias really operates. And then later on, it's alleged that Mike Condon, Condon, before an inquiry, attempted to find out what evidence would be given in the inquiry so he could discredit those officers... And that the personal history and complaints made against King and Martin were leaked. So what this is claimed is that the senior detective was actually going to try and discredit these officers who'd made that claim. And during the inquest into Daniel's death, Martin, policeman, said that his senior officer, Condon, told him to fuck off. You wouldn't know anything when he said he believed Clown was the man responsible. If you think about this, think about the intensity of an argument, think about the ineffectiveness and the inefficiencies around protection, around defending, and how sad that would be if it was true, which is asserted that it, that it is. Condon told the inquest the conversation with Martin never took place. And again, one of those detectives, um, Dennis Martin, lodged a complaint against Mr Condon for allegedly trying to stop him giving evidence about the Morecambe Pace. And then what um, Mr Condon said was it was an outrageous lie and that officer committed perjury on oath. All of those officers have since resigned. Uh, Mr Condon was the assistant commissioner. The interesting thing here is, my question is, did the Queensland Police Service, they issued a statement then which to me, the next thing we do when we defend and when we irrationally defend, we cover it up. And then we cover up the fact that we've covered it up. So we make it a nice, neat bundle that nobody can get into. And it's things like, um, I'll go into that a bit, but I'll come back to this one here. The Queensland Police Service issued a statement saying that during the investigation with the complexity of the Morkup case, there will always be opposing views within the investigation team. It says such views are critical to ensuring the investigation team remains open-minded and biased. Did it? The Police Service says that Morecambe investigation was thorough, and it is comfortable with the strategies used. The commissioner says his office should be proud in the way they investigated the soul of the case. I think history will show there's probably the biggest case we've ever handled in one hundred and fifty years history. I think that every Queensland Police officer can be very proud of the professional way our people went about tracking down this person ultimately, etc, et etc et so police services basically said, oh, hang on look we've just better get all our dirty washing and put it in a bundle and make sure that." It doesn't get seen. Since then, actually, um, uh, Dennis Martin has alleged that he found missing sections of a report and has submitted that to the necessary authority, so it'll be interesting to see where that goes. If you can look there at how, as I said before, if, if there was a mistake made in, yep, we didn't focus on that, we know we didn't because of this, that's a human thing to do. It's probably not a smart thing to do, and if we go back to looking at the whole dynamics in the system... If we understood those dynamics, that should not have happened, but it did if it did. One of the, I'll call it interesting, things that humans do, and it's a way that we defend, is that there are some topics that are undiscussable, and as such, the undiscussability of their undiscussable is undiscussable. So we can't talk about, say, um, it's difficult to talk about Indigenous issues. If we dare to talk out in certain circles about Indigenous issues, we'll be branded racist. So the branding of racist is to ensure that the issues don't get discussed because the undiscussability of the undiscussable is undiscussable. So we can't talk about what we can't talk about But we can't talk about the fact that we can't talk about it, if that makes sense. And topics that are made undiscussable have no opportunity of being problem-solved or chance of change. The social taboos, as I said, Indigenous issues, you're branded racist. If you want to talk openly on your views of homosexuality, you're branded as homophobic. If you want to talk openly about your views on gender issues, you're branded transphobic. So, So, those issues don't get discussed openly. What are the problems? What are the problems we 're facing now with um, males who have had gender transition competing in women's sports? You can't talk about that because if you talk about it you're, gender, you're, you're transphobic. We can't often talk about raising incompetency issues because that's seen as bullying. I remember years ago, I worked in an organization that had a project management system that was ineffective. Mm-hmm. People pretended that it worked. So they bypassed it but pretended to use it. They never discussed it because it was likely to provo- provoke retribution. They never fixed it. They'd worked their way around it. And this happens so often. We don't discuss something um, because we're scared to. It may embarrass someone. It may have repercussions for ourselves. So we continue on putting a shroud over it, which is the undiscussability of the undiscussable. Last thing I wanted to talk about is the political paradox. And are politicians liars? If they are, why? What's what's lying? And what's the... I guess the big crucial thing is the consequences for a politician to say we made a mistake. Or the opposition has a better policy. To do that would promote a loss of confidence. It would have to admit incompetence. So what are the alternatives? Deny and rationalised. If you look at... And I'll use the example recently in, in Australia of the um, of the voice to parliament. The Prime Minister... When asked afterwards, we promised to take this to the electorate, so therefore we did it. Yes, it was defeated, but we promised we would. So that's the denial of any responsibility, but the rationalisation is, well, we had to do it because we promised it. Didn't talk about uh, the promise to reduce electricity prices without being critical of the government. Deflect. And if you look there, if we deflect, and again, I'll take an example from our illustrious Prime Minister, he was questioned by the opposition um, spokesperson uh, on Indigenous Affairs in question time after the defeat of The Voice around a, a um, an inquiry. And the Prime Minister totally deflected, did not respond to that question, went around, blamed the opposition, basically said the opposition hadn't done anything, and totally deflected the question. Discredit the source. Again using this as an example. Opposition has failed to do anything. Find someone to blame. It wasn't us. It wasn't the fact that our messaging was poor. It wasn't any of those things. It was the the opposition telling lies um, and the other campaign telling lies and offering misinformation. And those things then protect the integrity, to a degree, of the Prime Minister to say, well, we did the right thing and it wasn't our fault, it just happened. So what are the consequences for the alternative? Well, if we if we do go down that track, people forget. We save face and we're seen to be doing. So we can turn it around and say they did it. We can turn it around and deflect the question. People forget that you've deflected the question. You've saved face and you're being seen to be doing. And oftentimes in politics, being seen to be doing is the big tick as opposed to doing. And then the outcome is that you've irrationally rationalised. Your rationalisation is actually irrational. I'd have to think about that one for a while. Do you, offer, do you really think that an honest position would survive the wrath of the media? The rationalisation of our defensive behaviour, seen to be doing, playing the game, saving face, decreased efficiencies, we're more inefficient. Decreased effectiveness, we are less effective. If we defend and rationalize, noble cause corruption, we stifle learning, we break relationships. And if you look how sad to me, from a political point of view, since this voice to Parliament, my view is the plight of Indigenous Australians remains a political football, and that is probably the saddest thing. We cover our asses, we learn how to do that beautifully. And that's the whole thing of defensive behaviour. It wasn't me. Can we do things about it? Can we learn? hopefully, but it's very inherent in our makeup. And I remember reading an article once that talked about our dinosaur brain, and our dinosaur brain is our self-preservation brain. Sometimes we act out of self-preservation when really we're destroying ourselves. Thank you again for your time, and hopefully we'll see you next time.